0: I don't know if in the late 1990s you saw or were aware of the movie Independence Day. I read something today about that movie I did not know. It was actually a remake of a 1953 film, War of the Worlds. I won't ask who saw that, but anyway, 1953 film, War of the Worlds. Um, Now, remakes are supposed to be better, right? Well, Independence Day, if you saw that movie you would remember that the way they got rid of the aliens was some strategically placed bombs. Nothing wrong with that storyline at all, except that it's a remake and it's supposed to make the story better. Do you know what happened in the 1953 film? Uh, the the uh, people created a weapon to try to destroy the aliens, and the weapon got destroyed, and so the people had no hope. There was no way they could rescue themselves. And the movie shows churches just packed with people praying and crying out to the Lord, and then an earthborn bacteria infects the aliens and kills them. And the in the last scene of the movie, there's this voiceover that says, "All that man could do failed." And the last scene of the movie was a group of people standing on a hillside praising God and singing to the Lord. Now, isn't that interesting? The the remake, I mean, it's nothing like that, but it's kind of reflective of our nation, how we have just slid further and further away from any um, touch with the truth. And in reality, if you think about where we've come since the late 1990s, we've gone even further and further away. It's very interesting to me that our very first president, George Washington, warned us about this. I, I stumbled upon his farewell address, and I want to read to you an excerpt from his farewell address as president of the United States. As George Washington, first president. Listen to what he says. Of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. In vain would that man claim the tribute of patriotism who should labor to subvert these great pillars of human happiness, religion, and morality. These firmest props of the duties of men and citizen. And he says the mere politician, when he, when he says the mere politician, what he's referring to is somebody that is more concerned with politics than he is with religion or morality. He says, the, the mere politician, the guy who doesn't espouse to be, you know, a Christian or whatever. The mere politician, equally with the pious man, the man who is chiefly concerned with religion and morality. So that the mere politician, equally with a pious man, ought to respect and cherish those pillars, religion and morality. A volume could not trace all their connections with private and public felicity. Let it simply be asked, where is the security for property, for reputation, for life? If the sense of religious obligation deserts the oaths, which are the instruments of investigation in courts of justice. He says, we lose these pillars in our political realm, we will lose justice. Is this not unbelievable? Let us with caution indulge the supposition that morality can be maintained without religion. Whatever may be conceded to the influence of refined education on minds of peculiar structure, reason and experience both forbid us to expect that national morality can prevail in exclusion of religious principle. You know what he just said? He just said what I said to you a month ago. He just said your voice matters as a believer in the truth of what God says. And without your voice, we cannot maintain any morality in the political realm, in our culture, in our nation. He says, it is substantially true that virtue or morality is a necessary spring of popular government. He says the government just will not work. Our government will not work Without the foundation of morality that religion gives it. And when he's talking about religion, he's talking about a Christian religion. There's no other religion that had the principles and the sacrifice and and the foundations of Christianity. And he's saying that those things provide what, what is needed for a nation like ours to survive. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? Particularly when you think how far we have fallen. We, we have fallen so far. And one of the areas where we have fallen so far is the area of sexuality. And that's one I want to talk to you about tonight a little bit. Before, before we dive into that topic, um, I, I want to remind you of a passage of Scripture. John chapter 8, verse 31 and 32. Jesus was saying to those Jews who believed him, If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. So if you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, what is more important to you than anything else is making sure you continue in line with the truth of God. And the reason that you do that, he says, you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. He says, you are a disciple if you stay in the truth. And guess what's going to happen if you stay in the truth? going to set you free. Now here we are living in this country and we, because we placed our faith in Jesus Christ, know a freedom that no country could give us. Only comes through Jesus Christ. We also know that the freedom we have in Christ based on the truth of God's word has a great effect on everyone. That The principles of scripture have an effect on a nation. And here we are living out these truths. And our voice in our country is, as George Washington said, indispensable. We have to be speaking because if we're not speaking what God says, no one's hearing what God says. And if no one's hearing what God says, then nobody has a moral lens in which to judge the things that they're being faced with. if If we speak God's words... As a church, as Christians in this nation, the nation, the culture, the government, where we're headed might turn. It might. If we speak what God says, it might not. There's there's no guarantee that if we are as faithful as we possibly can to speak what God says, that our nation's going to turn and reform. And the reason I think that's important to recognize is the ultimate goal of what I'm trying to encourage us to do is not reform in our culture. That's not the ultimate goal. Not government reform, political reform, or cultural reform. The ultimate goal is to create two possibilities. One, for people to be saved. And two, the possibility of a reform in our nation that furthers the glory of God. I'm not about the United States just being a better country. I'm about the United States being a better country for the furtherance of the glory of God and reaching the nations with the gospel. And when our country is lining itself up with the truths of God's word at some level, at least a moral level, we will experience a continued ability to be free to touch the world as the church. And that's the role of government. Remember we talked about the last time we met? The role of government is to actually make things better so the church can do what God called the church to do. And so we want that to happen, but what we really want is for the gospel to go forth, people to be saved, for reform to happen so that it would further the glory of God. And one area where we need to be using God's word and saying what God says is the area of sexuality. So I want to kind of tonight create... Uh, maybe some, some foundation for working through this idea of human sexuality uh, because it is a huge deal. I mean, the, the homosexual landslide is just creating an enormous amount of energy across our nation. It is not far-fetched to believe that at some point in the near future, our entire country will affirm and our government will actually be putting in place and sanctioning same-sex marriage across our entire nation. It's not far-fetched to say that there is going to come a day in the near future, if, if where we're headed is any indication, that, that same-sex marriage will be a civil right. Which means, if that gets here, if that's where we're headed, and that happens... That means that anybody who opposes same-sex marriage, any church or any individual, is the equivalent of a modern-day segregationist. Think about that. Do you think we're going to enjoy freedom at that moment? Or do you think freedom will be greatly impinged upon? Yes. And we just need to remember that God's truth is the way to real freedom. And we think about this Human sexuality, let me give you a foundation. First of all, the issue of biology. If we just look at biology, we're going to have a real good indication of what human sexuality is supposed to be like. A man was made a certain way, a woman was made a certain way, and they go together. And you can just look at biology, you can see there's some kind of definition going on there. And that that definition supersedes A person's personal preference. See, what our culture is trying to say is that the most important thing we can put out there about human sexuality is a matter of your own preference. But biology says that can't be true. Because the way we were made says it's not about preference, it's about biological function. Now, God in his goodness did not leave it up to us to figure it out on the basis of biology. He actually gave a divine definition about human sexuality. That human sexuality is supposed to be experienced between a man and a woman. And that definition of sexuality was contained within the definition of marriage that God gave us. And so just look with me real quickly at Genesis chapter 2. We're just going to read that passage that most of you are probably familiar with. The end of Genesis chapter 2. And uh, I'm not going to go to all the other passages that we could go to regarding marriage. Uh, But but Matthew talks about it several places. Matthew chapter 19, also in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, It's talked about in Mark and Luke. It's talked about in Ephesians chapter 5. It's talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. There's many places where the Bible addresses the divine definition of marriage and sexuality. But uh, here in Genesis chapter 2, we see the first Divine definition at the end there, it says, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. They shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were naked and they both unashamed. So God has defined marriage between one man and one woman for life. That's God's definition of marriage. Now, because God has defined it both biologically through creation and he's defined it both also with a decree, a statement, a definition in Scripture, we say and we understand that because what God has said and done, that that marriage and sexuality is sacred. It's not up for debate. This is not an element of life and perspective that is up for debate, debate because God defined it, it is sacred. This is not a matter of preference. This is a matter of design and God's declaration for that design. Now, I firmly believe that in this room tonight, the majority of us have no problem with seeing and accepting that God has defined marriage and sexuality so that we would say it is sacred. I I think that we all agree with that. Um, if, if, If you don't, then I'm glad you're here, and I'm glad you're listening. But I suspect that most of us in here do share that affirmation of what God says. It is sacred. Not up for debate. This is what God has defined. Now, it's got me thinking, how much do we really embrace the sacredness of marriage and sexuality as a church, and so this week I was just thinking to myself, I was and I was thinking about this, and I was like, you know, I wonder, I wonder what our church would do if a young couple walked into our church, attended one of our Bible studies, and that young couple um, was not married. And they mentioned in conversation that they were living together. That they had been living together for a couple years. And that they were not married. Well, I would hope and I really do think that most of us would respond to that scenario with excitement. Man, I'm glad they're here. It's a great place for them to be. They get to hear the truth. They get to see other couples that are married and what God's doing in their lives. It is really exciting that they've chosen to come here. Maybe they'll become followers of Christ and they'll see that it's better to follow what God says. And we we have an opportunity and I'm sure many of you would think about reaching out to them. Maybe invite them to lunch after one Sunday just to try to share what God says in a loving, humble, caring way. And I'm thankful that I'm really confident that that's how you would react to that scenario. But then it makes me wonder: wh- what if that young couple that is living together, together and not married are homosexuals? I and mean, then what? And and I just wonder: would would we as a church? have the same enthusiasm for them being here. So excited that they came. Thrilled that they're here to hear and see the gospel. I wonder how many of us would would really be enthusiastic about inviting them over to our homes for lunch. And the reason I have that question, the reason that it just kind of comes to the surface of my heart is because I feel like that a lot of times we get really fired up about homosexuality. Same-sex marriage. We are just, man, we are against that. We're headed in the wrong direction here. We got to stand up. And and I don't disagree with those perspectives. I hope you've heard that. But, But sometimes I begin to wonder, are we fired up about those issues? Because we just have a real aversion for homosexuality. But we really have not embraced the sacredness of marriage and sexuality. I'm going to tell you, there's no possible way that we can say what God says in our culture about sexuality and marriage if we have not fully embraced the sacredness of marriage and sexuality. And so then the question comes, have you embraced the sacredness of marriage and sexuality? Have you embraced that? I mean, that's the question we've got to ask ourselves. And and I suspect, like me, that your first inclination is to say yes, because we believe what God says. And yet I'm convinced that our first answer must be a resounding no. We do not embrace the sacredness of marriage and sexuality. Let me show you what I mean. When we don't embrace the sacredness of sexuality and marriage, when we are a nation, our government, whatever, What's going to come out of that is perversion of the sacredness of what God said marriage is every single time. So let's think through some of the perversions that occur when marriage and sexuality is not held as sacred. All right? Perversion number one, premarital sex. predominantly today in the public forums, sex education includes this idea that they're going to do it we might as well help them to do it safely what it's a complete perversion premarital sex number two a culture of divorce do we not live in a culture of divorce and what's really sad is that the Right to divorce with no cause has so infected the church that that people believe they can get divorced because they're not happy. And they really believe, honestly believe, that God will be okay with that because God really wants them to be happy. That's a complete perversion of the sacredness of marriage and sexuality. All right, number three, adultery. Now, I don't go into a lot of detail there, but ultimately that boils down to um, I have an agenda, I have a preference, I have a desire, and it really doesn't matter to me what God says. Now, in that same frame, though it's not exactly the same, the Bible says there is an equivalency here, is pornography. And when I'm talking about pornography, I'm talking about Internet, I'm talking about books you can read, Fifty Shades of Grey, that kind of stuff. All of that stuff falls into that category. Every bit of that lust, every bit of that is a perversion of the sacredness of marriage and sexuality. And then you have homosexuality and every other kind of perversion. And and all of this, you know, we have this big problem with homosexuality, but but you've got to understand that the perspective that drives the idea that I can do what I want because it's my preference that, that leads to this homosexual landslide is the same perspective that leads to every other kind of perversion in sexuality. Identical. And here's what we've got to understand is it the homosexual and that perversion of the sacredness of marriage and sexuality is no different than the perversion in any other way. It's all perversion, it is all sin, and it all comes from not holding the sacredness of what God says is sacred. So, when I say that our resounding answer to the question, have we held marriage and sexuality sacred, should be no. The reason I'm saying that is because we've all sinned against God. Now, maybe you did not get a divorce. Maybe maybe you never uh, looked at pornography. Maybe you have not. And did not have premarital sex. And I hope that you did not do those things because there is so much pain and devastation that comes with those experiences. So maybe those weren't the things that you did in your life that profaned the sacred. But every single one of us have profaned the sacred, all of us. Until we understand that we have profaned the sacred in the same way any other sinner has profaned the sacred, and the only thing that separates us and the homosexual is the grace of God. Until we get that, we won't be able to say what God says. But when we get that, then they're going to walk into our church and, God, I pray you would grant us an opportunity to have someone come in our church that's so desperately lost that they believe what they're living is okay, and we could love them and share truth with them. And if they come in here and we get this perspective, then we will be excited they're here. We will wrap our arms around them. We will invite them to lunch because we will know from the bottom of our hearts that the only thing that makes us any different from them is the grace of God. And save the grace of God touching their lives, they will be in hell just like I would have been in hell except for Jesus. Christ. I mean, people need to hear what God says and feel it from a people who know what it means when God says, I love you, even though you've sinned against me. Do you recognize that your salvation is a gift that's given to you by faith so that God takes all your sin? And he washes you clean and he gives you all Christ's righteousness so that none of your good deeds gives anything towards the account of the righteousness required to enter heaven. None of them. The scripture says that all of our good deeds apart from Jesus Christ are like filthy rags. Everything that you do that reflects Christ after you come to Christ is just evidence of his grace and the righteousness he gave you. It's not evidence of anything in you. You're no different than the the perverse person who does not know Christ except for the grace of God and the presence of his spirit bringing out the godliness of the Lord in you. And until we get that, until we embrace the sacred like that, we don't really have anything to say. Because what we say will sound so self-righteous that it will be completely offensive in the worst kind of way. Yeah, there's a chance that when we say what God says in the right way, that it will be offensive. But it won't be because we're offensive. It It will be because people would rather choose darkness than light. But if people never see the light, they don't have a chance to choose. So, here we are. We're in this moment. And you know what we really need more than anything else tonight? Is for God just to remind us how we have profaned the sacred. We really need Him to do that. Because if God will remind us how we've profaned the sacred, then we'll see His grace in a way that will allow us to speak words of life to those who are dying. You, know what, you want to know what you're supposed to say to people in our world? The most important thing you can tell them is that I've profaned the sacred, but I've found forgiveness. And God saved me. This truth has set me free. P- people need to hear what God is saying. And the best way to be reminded of what God has said to you is to ask Him tonight to remind you of any way you've profaned the sacred. And we're just going to spend a few minutes doing that. I'm just going to turn the Lord in prayer if you're able. To get on your knees before God, I want to encourage you to do that. And and here's why. Being on your knees is not some spiritual posture that is better than standing up and praying. But sometimes posture does help your heart be in a better position. And getting on your knees is certainly one of those ways you can place your body in a position that encourages your heart. So if you can, I'd love you to do that. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to guide you through some prayer time, okay? Okay. And we need the Lord to just, to just be here and to take care of this. All right? And I know there's some young folks in here, some little guys in here. Listen, what I'm going to tell you to do, what I'm going to guide you to do, you can do this. Because every one of us have sinned against God. Every one of us. And there's something wonderful when God shows us our sin. And then he tells us we're forgiven. And we need that. If we're going to leave this place saying the right kind of things, we need that more than anything else.